welcome to Automating the Chain, the weekly podcast and webinar specifically engineered to support and educate executives as they explore the potential of industrial automation. Each week, we sit down with an executive leader or their technical counterpart of an international organization to discuss how they plan to leverage industrial automation to advance their business. We will also have startups focused on automating the supply chain explain their technology in an accessible way. Experts in the field will colour in historical and current case studies. Without further ado, let's get into the show. Hi Jeff, how are you? Hey T, great to, great to talk to you again. Great to talk to you. I, I feel like we've been, you know, speaking quite a lot lately <laughs> and You've become the person I call. Wow, <laughs> wow you're a great, you you got a lot of experience too. You're great to listen to. Yeah. Um, so Jeff, I, I want to introduce you as the former president of OPEX Corporation. You were president for eight years and really climbed the ranks with quite a lot of experience in developing the company's commercial, well, the commercial side of the business. You have over 34 years in industrial automation so yeah. that's a lot of, well, that's a lot of time. I, I have to say I was not born 34 years ago. <laughs> I'm giving away my age, but i um, love you to talk about, you know, how you got into industrial robotics, what you've been doing for the last 34 years, and what you're doing for the next 34 years. Yeah, yeah. Well, how I got into it, man. T, when I got out of college, I had a computer science degree. I ended up working at Syracuse University for their um, annual giving uh, fund, annual giving group or, or department. Basically, they had a telemarketing operation. Every night, about 200 university students would come in and they would call alumni, as we all get calls from our universities and, and, and request donations, right? I ran a group of students that did the statistical analysis and, and, and put all the information together on because SU had a uh, hundred uh, dozens of colleges, you know, the College of Forestry, the College of Science, and everything, and they each did their own fundraising, their own fundraising and stuff. So from there, I stumbled into this obscure company in Rochester, New York, called RetroTech, that specialized in technology upgrades or retrofits for automatic storage and retrieval systems, and basically. I came on board with that background in telemarketing to help them penetrate the industry and more specifically, identify companies that had the type of equipment that they were looking to provide their services for, right? So I had this great, the owners, so Rich James, Len DeWeer, would spend uh, a day every week with me, educating me about the material handling industry, right? And so that kind of launched my excitement about material handling, right? But what that, for the path that followed is basically, I've worked with a number of companies in the industry and ultimately OPEC, help use new technologies, new ideas, new companies into the material handling market. And I, I guess that's where I uh, flourish, right? Is helping companies kind of, kind of get the stepping stone, figure out where their solutions apply what industries they might want to penetrate and how to introduce their, their product to the material handling industry. 
I just, I want you to give a bit more context as to how large material hand- handling as an industry and the sector is. And uh-huh. a little bit of more context, OPEX had, you have thousands of employees and to give a bit more insight as to what exactly, where you took the company in eight years. And then we can go a little bit deeper into yeah. what you're doing now. It, That's okay. Yeah, it's, the industry's a billion of dollars globally. And interesting, that's a small percentage. When you look at automation, it's a small percentage of the overall warehouse industry. And, you know, where we're seeing these point solutions like AMRs and robots and artificial intelligence entering the market, I see that as expanding the potential within the material handling industry, right? More affordable solutions that companies that haven't automated yet can start can start applying. You know, at OPEX, we started with a great idea. They had a product called Perfect Pick. I came on board in 2012, it was pretty well vetted, and we launched it, took it to market, and had just had wild success from the first system to, you know, now they've got dozens that are installed globally, along with a complementary product, uh, an item sorter called SureSort. So we, we really kind of, we kind of entered the market as a new toy, if you will, kind of the bell on the ball at their first appearance at, at ProMat. And, and things just kind of took off from there. Wow. Got it. And today's topic, by the way, we we have been speaking extensively about where the market's going. There's so many opportunities. And what we wanted to, we, we both agreed that the roadblocks and the challenges of investing in the industry could be more informative to anyone who's in, uh, investing right now, whether it's the large corporation, I mean, every manufacturing company CEO or uh, CFO is probably looking at investing in robotics. However, yeah. you you mentioned that giving them insights as to the challenges, what roadblocks they might stumble upon could be fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't call them roadblocks. I guess I call them, you know, caution signs as you move forward looking at automation. There's, you know, everybody's bracketing their conversations around uh, the COVID effect. So if you want to look at how COVID, I look at it in terms of what has COVID brought to light in terms of things that we has shined a light on things that I think we should be aware of. And I know CEOs and executives are now hyper-focused on how it's affected their business, right? One area specifically is, is labor, right? So when COVID hit, we had this issue with availability uh, of labor. How do you identify people that want to work in the warehouse environment? Do you offer uh, bonus pay for people to work in, in an open environment like that? The struggle with making sure that you're social distancing properly, you're protecting your employees, you're investing in PPE equipment and stuff. So all of a sudden, labor became a popular issue to talk about. But the, but I, most of these executives should be aware of the fact that labor's been an issue for a while. Mm-hmm. Many, many customers that I work with in the past, you know, have said that one of the reasons that we're looking at automation is, is it's not the necessarily the cost savings that we would get from applying automation over the labor costs. It's the fact that we can't find people to hire and retain. Labor and warehouses a lot of times typically have a high turnover rate. You've got a a large investment in training. T, I I just talked to a buddy the other day 
who is working with a customer, a 3PL customer, that told me that they're, they hire, they, they employ 300 people in their warehouse. They had 100% turnover last year. Wow. So they hired 350 people for 300 positions within the year. I talked to a, a buddy yesterday, two days ago, that reached out to me and said, hey, we're looking at implementing AMRs. You got any suggestions? And the reason we talked about labor, he can't find people to hire. He's in North Jersey, right? So, so this labor issue is, is gaining a lot of attention, right? But here's the, here's the interesting thing. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics predicts that as it tracks the availability of the, uh, of the availability of workers, the workforce age under 65, that is projected to steadily decline until roughly 2035, we reach a point where there are more people in retirement than there are available workers. Mm-hmm. So, so this, is a, this should shine a light on a labor issue that isn't going away, right? And then you have the caution that what if we have another COVID type issue that comes up, right? How are you going to deal with that? And, and it directly affects labor, right? So that then drives this, this driving or this increased interest in, in automation, which leads to my other point, which is post-COVID, many companies, because they have seen 100, 200, 3%, 300% increase in their order volumes, even exceeding maybe what their holiday, their peak volumes are, there's this big question about there about where is my non-peak, where are my non-peak volumes going to fall post-COVID? Are they going to settle at a higher rate than they were pre-COVID? And everybody seems to be, yes, they are. But nobody's sure. Is it 10%? Is it 50%? Is it 80%? Well, knowing that distinctly drives what type of automation you might invest in, right? And so my caution is that we have a lot of companies now that are investigating automation. We have a lot of companies that are executing their plans for automation. A lot of integrators are telling me that you know they, they're killing it. They're, they're They've got backlogs into 2022, but back to this uh, friend that I talked to a couple of days ago, you know, he's looking at implementing an AMR solution, but it's a very specific point to point delivery solution. And if his business were to grow two, three, four, five, or hundred percent above what it is, that solution may become not as effective for them. So he might have to invest in, in something else, right? So in one sense, oh, well, he's not thinking too far forward. The other sense is he, he can't pin down where the numbers are going to fall. So he, need, so he needs automation that's flexible enough mm-hmm. to grow with his business as his business is growing rather than where he thinks it's going to be in a year or two. So that introduces the other challenge, right? Typically, integrators, automation companies will work very closely hand in hand with a customer to evaluate their data on their order volumes over the past two to three years, historical data, right? Mm -hmm. And then based on that, we'll we'll take a projection. Well, you know, in the next five years, we think we'll, we'll achieve this type of growth. And that can help drive the type of automation solutions that can support that growth. 
the hurdle right now is we don't know if that projection is going to be reached in five years or one year. And so again, back to the flex, back to the flexibility question, if you reach your projected growth model for whatever you invest in, what's your plan B? Mm-hmm. And so this need for, I, I guess the caution is when you're looking at automation, you've got to ask the question, if I design this for X, what happens when I reach X? Right. How do I go beyond that? I love the theme of flexibility, I, whether it is a ro- robot that's flexible or let's say a system integrator that enables you to you know, have low code which is something that, you know, is a company that is sponsoring automate, automating the chain is doing. I mean, flexibility yeah. is, seems like the key word. On, yeah. the, on the glamorous side of, and the labor discussion, I mean, uh, one of the most interesting things is how do we get young people in or how do we make this industry attractive again? And seriously, a lot of people, when I, when I say I'm in uh, industrial automation, they look at me and they're like, but why? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Yeah. How do you make it sexy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can see that reaction. And I think that behavioral change uh, is going to be getting people excited about something so critical to our global economy or national economy or regional economy is so important. Yeah. So this is why we're sitting here today, I guess. So let's go. Let's move on to the topic of what you're doing now. So you've now started yeah. your own consultancy firm. You've got you know, a huge amount of startups and corporations, but also investors who are turning to you and getting your expert uh, opinion or you're, they're getting to help them on particular projects. What, do, what is the demand you're seeing and where do you think uh, that's likely to grow? Well, so let's talk about startups. Right. So I've been fortunate to engage in discussions with a number of startups. And the fascinating part is a number of these are in self-mode, right? They don't want anybody to know what they're doing yet. And the, the demand is understanding where their solution set applies, mm-hmm. right? The struggle is, you know, I've got this great solution looking for a problem type thing, right? But understanding how they're focus how their art project or science project, right, can be uh, utilized in, in the material handling industry. So I've got, a, 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 it's fascinating. I, I talked to some off the charts, intelligent people, but uh, a number of them know very little about material handling. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting because a lot of these startups are looking way beyond material handling, right? They want to move into agriculture, healthcare, self-driving cars, apply their AI solutions to, you know, anything outside of the warehouse. But uh, a lot of these startups recognize that the, the application in a warehouse is almost, almost mm-hmm. a secure environment. It's, uh, it's a little more controllable than the real world, right? So they've got great future plans, but trying to help them get launched, introduced, and, and, and even beta tested in the warehouse environment is one of the biggest challenges that they have. The second one is funding, understanding how to present, understanding how to present their pitch deck mm-hmm. to a group of investors so that they can clearly and succinctly outline what problem their solution solves 
and where it can play in the marketplace and what the potential growth is. So I, I work with a couple of companies on trying to help them simplify, if you will, or, or more strategically mm-hmm. present their message and stuff. Because there are, there's gobs of VC and angel investors and private equity investors that are anxious to invest in automation. But interesting, what I'm starting to see is kind of a shift from, there's been a lot of investments in uh, autonomous mobile robots, robotic picking technology. I'm starting to see a, a, a shift in interest in artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. in AI, almost you know the, 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 the brains mm-hmm. behind running and controlling all this type of equipment. Uh, absolutely. And just a fun statistic, Saudi Aramco have got a fund investing a billion into automation, industrial automation. I mean, when you hear thing, uh, statistics like that, you know that A, onshoring is a thing, B, industrial robotics is definitely a thing, and C, every country, I mean, is trying to secure their, I, I would say, their future by investing in uh, companies or technologies that are going to enable them to have food security, water security, and so on. So these are the the trends that I, I sort of hear and also read about. So let's go to you know forward thinking, more optimism. You know, what are you excited about in the next? I would say five to ten years. What keeps you going every single day? <laughs> what are you excited about in the supply chain automation space? So. Where I'm at right now, and I would say I work more as an advisor, right? I'm really excited about the de- uh, development in in AI, in software, right? I see equipment like AMRs, robotics, the arm, the cameras, the grippers becoming commoditized. Mm-hmm. And the platform level, the intelligence behind driving the traffic control, the interpretation on vision kind of taken off and bleeding into many other areas, even behind beyond the warehouse. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested. I'm intrigued with the micro fulfillment uh, movement. You hear a lot about how it's being utilized for grocery uh, distribution. I'm anxious for grocery to be a success in that area. And it is, right? Because I think that's going to quickly fall into adoption by retail companies. Moving into what I call ultra micro fulfillment centers where automation is utilized in a very small footprint, even like a storefront in a major metropolitan area. There are already movements under development to look at that type of application. But then I'm very interested in the returns process. I think micro-fulfillment and ultra-micro-fulfillment will find their best success Mm -hmm. when they can be bi-directional. So uh, I order something online. It comes from a micro-fulfillment center. It gets delivered to my house. Well, what if it's delivered to my house in which they're already doing with autonomous vehicles, whether or not it's Starship or uh, Neo or Gatek or or all all these other nifty autonomous vehicles and and little robots. What if once it delivers your product, it can also accept a return and take that return back to the micro fulfillment center, right? Now you don't have an empty vessel uh, producing no profit, right? Coming back to your vehicle. That 
interest intrigues me. I, I can see that being a big essentially because uh, optimization of who might want to return in the neighborhood could be yeah. a part of the next stage. You know, yeah. how an autonomous vehicle could deliver it. And the next stage is what around the corner could be returned, yeah. as you said, most efficiently. But yeah. uh, Jeff, I think we have to get you back on. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm uh, I, honestly, I'm so grateful for your time, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you back on uh, soon with whether it's with one of your companies you're advising. So thank you so much for your time today and I'm looking forward to having you back on Automating the Chain. Excellent. Thanks, T. Great talking to you. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and let us know what you liked. To follow along with future episodes, be sure to subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice or head over to automatingthechain.com for the latest updates. Until next time.